I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A lot of parents will take things too far. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. I was 16, 17 when I first started, and you make a bad call, you got the parents yelling at you. Screaming, swearing, physical threats. Our question today, how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? I've had situations where even my teammates' parents have came onto the field and like was like, stop the game, like they're cheating. I've seen it at games for sure. Volleyball games, soccer games, basketball games. I just remember some parents always yelling. We used to have this one guy, it was, hey, paddle down, George! And he's yelling and you feel a little nervous, you know? You're not like, hey, this isn't just a game anymore. When my kids played minor hockey and refereed, I spent a lot of time in rinks. I loved being a hockey dad, but being the father of referees, not so much. What possesses someone, a parent or coach, to scream at a 13 or 14-year-old official or threaten them? And it's not just hockey. A minor soccer league in Quebec will be having some of its referees wear body cameras this season to try to stop the abuse. So whether it's the rink, soccer pitch or ballpark, what have you seen? or experienced. Our question, how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Check Up, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from January 14th, 2024. And by the way, I wanted to mention this show topic was not my idea. It was pitched by another member of the team. And I mentioned that because my older son is still involved in refereeing. He's, in fact, the manager of officiating for Hockey Canada, but he didn't play any role in this program. Uh, okay, our first guest began refing soccer matches as, at 15 years old, but he briefly quit in 2021 after an incident involving some parents who came on the field and assaulted him. Adrian Tangella is now a referee consultant with the North Toronto Soccer club. He is also a referee instructor with Ontario Soccer and he joins us from Kingston where he is a medical student. Hi Adrian. Hi Ian. Uh, Take us back to that game in 2021. You were 19 years old. It was a a recreation league game. What happened? So the whole game was a very tense affair from the start. I was on my own which was in and of itself a bit of an abnormal event. Normally games at that level are refereed in teams of three but because of the staffing pressures that the COVID pandemic had brought on I was all alone and um, it was a tense game. There were certain moments that were managed well. There were also certain moments that I could have managed better Uh, but when it was all said and done and the final whistle had been blown two players start fighting with each other. The standard protocol for that is we go with a red card. I show one to one player, one to another player Uh, but I can't even put my red card in my pocket. Both benches have cleared by that point and the players are fighting with each other. The parents have come from their bleachers and instead of doing what I think the reasonable thing is and, you know, taking their own players away from the brawl, they're Mm -hmm. actually getting involved in the fight as well. And in 
in that kerfuffle, um, I'm getting struck on a couple of occasions. And uh, eventually that boils over. I grab my things. I head for my car. But even as I'm going towards my car, I'm being followed by uh, parents, players, but especially parents uh, who are yelling numerous expletives that aren't worth repeating. But the common theme was really just that what had transpired, everyone saw it, was all my fault and that I should be as as the official ashamed for that 40-person brawl that had happened. And that was in my uh, my uh, hometown in York Region, Ontario. Yeah, that, that's just like just terrible on so many different levels. I would like to think that there are points at which, let's say, when parents get involved or both teams got involved, that somebody would suddenly say, whoa, wait a second, like this is out of control. And, and they would stop, but they didn't. So it kept on going. It must have left you shaken. Absolutely. Absolutely. By the time that I had you know, got in the car and, and made it back into my driveway where I knew it was safe. It it I broke down for a solid period of time. Um, I took a week off work. I was working full time at that time. I had to take a week off work because of how stressful uh, the endeavor was. And I just needed to a, mo- a time for myself to recover. Uh, psychologically on the pitch, it took a lot longer than a week for things to go back to normal. Um, I still got anxiety for months, even maybe a few years after every time I, I got near a soccer pitch. And even now, I mean, I'm refing this evening um, and I don't get any more anxiety going to the field. But when these situations start to tense up and it looks like things are going in a similar direction to where they were previously, you know, that anxiety still flares up. So the effects are are quite serious and long lasting. Yeah. So those were the, the impacts on you. What about the aftermath in terms of how the teams acted uh, and, and in particular, how the league handled it? Quite poorly, in my opinion. So this was with a um, this was at a former club before I'd come over to North Toronto. Um, but the way what had happened was the two teams involved were uh, suspended for a week, I believe. And then they were back to normal play. There were no consequences that could be uh, dealt because I was on my own and I couldn't identify having been in the fray of a 40 person mass confrontation. I couldn't identify who exactly had hit me. So at that point, there was no accountability uh, that could have been achieved. Right. Aside from that one week suspension, which to me is is completely unacceptable. The only bit of, of perhaps uh, justice that's come out of that since was that I I worked with a couple of the players in subsequent seasons and the ones that did recognize me from that incident, you know, most of them have uh, have apologized and do feel bad about it. But that was way, way after the fact. I'm saying the next year or a year after that even. Yeah, but you know, like I'm thinking if, if that had been a police officer who had been attacked, even if there were was no video, there are ways you can figure out more about what happened. If you take it seriously enough, you know, if the league wanted to interview every single person and try to piece together what happened. I mean, did you get the sense that, that the league wasn't that motivated to get to the bottom of it? No, they weren't. And and that that really serve for me as my motivation to return to the sport. I had, like you mentioned, I quit for a couple of months, um, was really to try and create that change at a grassroots level, change that culture, change that conversation. But no, the motivation wasn't there. Um, it was a case of, okay, we'll dish out some suspensions just so that we can, uh, identify that, yes, this was a serious incident that had happened, but beyond that, no, I don't believe there was any motivation and, um, and anything of that sort.
You're listening to Cross Country Checkup, and we're live with Adrian Tangella, a soccer referee who's telling us about a, an incident that led him to uh, to step away from refing for a period of time. But as you heard, he is back at it. And as soon as this evening, he's going to be back on the pitch doing some refereeing. Our question, though, is how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? Our number is one 416 You can also text us with a comment to Two six seven five eight eight nine two four is the text number. Two two six seven five eight eight nine two four. Adrian, you've given this a lot of thought, and uh, and and you you have some suggestions on how we can make the environment better. G- give us an example. So I think one great example is to engage, um, you know, engage all individuals and get that conversation started about the meaning of officiating. I think this is something I've worked on at North Toronto and and definitely trying to get started here in Kingston as well. Um, it's trying to get everyone, and this starts with the coaches. They are such meaningful uh, players in the in the field of soccer because they're leaders for the players, they're leaders for the parents, they're such role models. So getting them on the same page, I think that's where it starts, and it's having that conversation of realizing that referees aren't there to make life difficult for players, coaches, or parents. We are not there because we want to control or dominate the game. That's not what motivates us to be in the sport, especially because of how difficult it is. We enter the sport, and especially those of us that do it year after year, we stay in the sport because we have a love for soccer. That's what it is. Um, And we want to promote sport at the youth, at the grassroots level. That's where most officiating happens in Ontario. That's the motivation. And I think we need to get that idea across so that the culture can start to shift from this adversarial nature, which is what it is right now, towards one where there can be genuine desire to collaborate between, again, parents, coaches, uh, players, and of course, the referees. We need to stop viewing the referees as the third team, which is how they're so often portrayed. Mm -hmm. We need to start viewing them as uh, part of the whole picture, part of the solution, um, and part of sport, really, an essential part of sport. So I think Having that conversation, getting those key individuals and coaches and coaching leaders involved and engaged in that, that will lead to massive downstream effects. So I think that's one practical way to get started. Yeah, fantastic talking to you. And thank you very much for kicking off what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation, Adrian. Thanks. Thank you, Ian. Adrian Tangella is a soccer referee and instructor and a med student. And if you're listening to the story and thinking, what would drive people to act like that? Stay tuned. We're going to be speaking to a psychotherapist who will have some insight into that. In the meantime, we'd like to hear from you. Actually, a psychologist is who we're going to be speaking to. In the meantime, we'd like to hear from you. We'd like to hear your stories of when parents cross the line. And maybe you are a parent or coach who's crossed the line yourself. Give us a call. We'd love to hear that perspective. Our question, how do we protect young referees? and umpires. Have you seen parents or coaches cross the line? And as you probably know, our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 888-416-8333, or you can go online, cbc.ca slash aircheck. John Taylor is calling from Hamilton. Hi, John. Hi there. How are you, Ian? Good, good. How do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse, John? Well, from our perspective as, as coaches, what we did, we had... Uh, meetings prior to the the uh, game starting, uh, the league starting, and we had uh, mandated the parents to spend a certain amount of time on the bench with us coaches to get a, a feel for what it's like to uh, hear raging mothers and fathers in the stands and and circling through the the, the children's 
parents. I was a, a father as well of the eight years that I coached hockey and ring it. And um, I don't know, it, 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 I think it helped. Mm-hmm. And uh, how, how long have you, how many years have you coached? It was eight years I coached. I haven't coached now since uh, 94. I'm, yeah. I'm retired now, but but I coached kids from eight years of age to age 16. Yeah. And and give me an example of, of, of a situation where you saw either a coach or, or a parent cross the line. Well, it's, it's amazing when you're on the bench on uh, across the ice and you hear all the yelling and screaming going on. And, uh, and, an example was, from my perspective as a coach, after a game, a parent would ap- approach me, and I remember this distinctly, and berating me for uh, not letting her child play the same amount of time as all the other players. And you know, what, what can you say to a to a raging parent like that? You just basically walk away, right? That is the classic parent complaint, though, isn't it? Is <laughs> to go to the coach cool. and say, "My kid deserved to play more." Um, and so, is that what you, is that all you were left to be able to do? Is just walk away? Well, there's no point in, in engaging in, in a, someone who's sort of under, out of control. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the best way to do it. I mean, coaches coaches take training. We have to go to Niagara College and learn to be, you know, coaches and go through the police screening and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of it's a volunteer mm-hmm. operation, right? And it's anyway. I only did it for eight years, like I said, and it was enough for me. Yeah. So that's a, that's a parent giving you a hard time as a coach. What about somebody giving a, a young referee a hard time? I assume even in that time frame, eight or nine years, you must have seen that happen. Oh, absolutely. And, and the, the the parents coming off the ice. The parents. I'm sorry. The players coming mm-hmm. off the ice and complaining about the call the referee made and all this kind of stuff. I said, the referees made their decision. That's it. You can't do anything about it. Let's just play a game and enjoy it. Yeah. Have fun. I would tell my kids, I mean, it was interesting for my kids because they were both players and referees, but as players, they would get upset with referees. Now, I, I never saw them kind of cross a line at all, but they would, they, you know, they'd complain, let's say, driving home, and I'd say, like, did you play a perfect game? And even they would have to admit, no, they didn't, because after all, who does? Right. Uh, and it's right. like, and, and the referee didn't have a perfect game either, right? Like, mistakes are, are part of the part of being human, and especially when you're 13, 14, 15 years old. John, thank you very much for calling. Thank you, Ian. Take care. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver, and this is Cross Country Checkup. And our question, how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? Or perhaps you are that person who crossed the line. You can give us some insight into what triggered that and maybe how we could stop that in the future. Our phone number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also get in touch with us by going online, cbc.ca slash aircheck. That's what Lorraine Price did from Nelson, Ontario. She said, in years gone by, I've witnessed coaches and parents cross the line on many occasions during minor hockey games, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to admit that I also have behaved badly at times. Hockey's an emotional game, but still not an excuse for bad behavior. Kids should be out there being competitive, but primarily having fun and learning skills about playing together as a team. Parents should cheer the team on and provide support. 
Neil Thompson uh, sent us a tweet. A grassroots approach would be a body camera, but it's expensive and only good after the fact. Also, train volunteers with cameras and voice recording to attend, record, and have the authority to ban offenders at games. Yeah, you know, I heard we're going to talk about the body camera part of this, and they are expensive. Uh, but uh, Neil makes a really good point. You can also capture a lot, and parents do this all the time anyway, um, with video cameras that are in the stands that can uh, give us a record of what's happening on the ice or on the field. Uh, Sue Garrett uh, emailed us. Uh, she's in Ontario. Over the past couple of decades, sports organizations have been very good at paying lip service to countering abuse of and violence towards their refs. Most have instituted agreements that must be signed by parents and in some cases that outline their support of zero tolerance policies. I think the refs should be given and fully supported in using a card system, very much like the one in soccer. This system works as well for players and coaches as for referees and is easily understandable for all concerned. Though I do know hockey referees, even young hockey referees, do have the power to uh, kick out a a player for sure, a coach, um, and even somebody in the stands. I'm pretty sure that they can do that even without a formal card system. Well, as we'll hear... Throughout the show, and our our previous guest, Adrian, is not alone in his experience. Many leaders in local sports organizations have grappled with this issue over the years, and that includes our next guest. Sean Tobin is the Assistant Referee-in-Chief for Hockey Eastern Ontario, and he is in Ottawa right now. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you doing? Good. So in your league... Uh, how often do you have to deal with parents or coaches that are, you know, yelling at, uh, harassing young referees? It's an ongoing problem here, like everywhere else. So it's 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 nightly. I mean, it's it's something that we deal with certainly on a weekly basis. But we're very fortunate that uh, Hockey Eastern Ontario has been very supportive of our referees and in, in handling those kinds of issues. Yeah. So so give me an example of, of something that you've had to deal with when it comes to bad behavior towards young referees. Um, so the worst case I can think of was this happened to me as a kid and it it happened, uh, you know, a couple of years ago as well, you know, parents, uh, following uh, kids out to the referee, uh, following them out to the parking lot or trying to confront them after a game and, and, you know, threatening behavior and things like that. I mean, that's probably the scariest stuff we're dealing with where, you know, it carries off beyond the ice and, and into the dressing room and outside. Yeah. Um, and, and you said that happened to you when you were much younger? Yeah, when I was in my teenage years, I, I did have it with a parent, uh, particularly, he was uh, quite upset, and he would, would show up uh, to different games that I was working, and at one point even came out in the parking lot with a hockey stick and, um, you know, was threatening. I don't know if he actually would have hit me with it, but when you're a teenager, I mean, that's that's quite scary and frightening, right? So it's it's something that, uh, that uh, we're grappling with all the time. Yeah, so so you stuck with the refereeing, obviously, but I'm guessing those kinds of incidents, even if it's not that far over the line, which that was, but but to be 13, 14 years old and have adults, you know, in your face screaming at you, um, I assume that that leads to to some young referees saying, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Absolutely. I mean, we have a problem right across the country with uh, minor hockey referees who quit. I mean, in, in our in Hockey Eastern Ontario, we did some statistics on this a couple of years ago. We, we lose about one out of three of them after the first year, about 50% after the second year, and two-thirds of them after three years. And there's a variety of reasons for this, of course, not just abuse, but abuse is certainly uh, a key part of the issue that we're trying to address. 
We're here live with Sean Tobin, the Assistant Referee-in-Chief for Hockey Eastern Ontario. Our question today on Cross Country Checkup, how do we protect young referees and umpires? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? Our number is one 888 or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. So Sean, how do we stop this behavior? We're trying to implement a number of initiatives to, to deal with that. Montreal, a couple of years ago, their minor hockey program implemented a green armband initiative, which we have adopted here in Hockey Eastern Ontario and other hockey groups have adopted across the country. Essentially, officials that are under the age of 18, so basically minors under the law, wear a green armband on their arm. And that signifies to coaches, players, parents that these are youth, that if you're getting upset and yelling and screaming, you're not yelling at a referee, you're yelling at a kid, essentially. And so we implemented that a couple of years ago. It's been really successful. The referees who've, who wear the green armbands, uh, we did a survey and about you know over 97% of them thought it was a, was a good idea. It increases their confidence level. I don't think it's the only uh, thing we need to do. But what it did do was raise some awareness um, with parents with coaches that a large portion of our games are covered by these kids. And if we don't have them, our games don't get covered. It's, you know, no ref, no game, essentially. And so in addition to that, we've started putting out rule of the week videos so that we do on uh, YouTube. We put them out on our social media. And the idea is to educate parents and coaches and players and, of course, officials on what the rules of the game are. So we hope that providing that education that will help. Um, as part of the Green Armband Initiative, the other thing, though, that we did in Hockey Eastern Ontario is that we implemented increased supplementary, supplementary discipline uh, for coaches who cross that line. So, for example, if you're a coach who's exhibiting abusive behavior towards me as a man in his 40s, you may get a, a two or four game suspension for that behavior. If you do that to a youth, um, that suspension doubles. And that's had an impact as well. So, like I said, I think Hockey Eastern Ontario is really trying to take this issue seriously and has been uh, very supportive of the referees as we're trying to deal with with some of these issues. Give me a sense, uh, Sean, of, of of the parents. Like, who are the parents that that you're having to deal with uh, because they have crossed the line in their dealings with referees? I don't see a lot of the issues with parents in terms of hearings that I would attend. These are mm-hmm. typically, we see them in spectator ejections, right? So what we're seeing, though, is more referees in the last number of years are ejecting spectators more than I saw in the, you know, the, the 10 or 15 years before that, right? So referees have uh, really had enough of this and they are, you know, they're more uh, forceful, I think, in addressing spectator issues than we were when we were kids. And, and of course, I think it's more socially acceptable to deal with that in that way than it was years ago. I'm just wondering if there's somebody listening to this program who has no connection to the world of, of youth sports uh, or a young referee or umpire and wondering, you know, maybe this conversation isn't very relevant to them. Is there anything that you've seen uh, in your travels and, and dealing with this topic that you think kind of the wider audience should keep in mind? I think it's about, it's, it's not just about youth sport. I think it's about respect in general. And, uh, you know, health and safety of the psychological health and safety of, of everybody. And I think sometimes when folks go into an arena, there's uh, it's sort of acceptable, uh, seen as acceptable to behave that way. And it isn't. And I, I think that what we're trying to adopt in youth sport is the same thing that we're trying to adopt the society in general. And that is 
treating people with uh, with dignity and respect. And I just think we've we've got a long way to go. But I think, uh, you know, we, we still, you know, we're on the right track, I hope. Sean, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Sean Tobin is the Assistant Referee-in-Chief for Hockey Eastern Ontario. Stay tuned. In the next hour, our Ask Me Anything is focused on a story that's been making headlines for more than a week now. Federal Aviation Administration investigating Boeing after a panel on one of its passenger planes uh, flew off in mid-flight. If you've seen the video, you can imagine how scary it would have been to be on that flight. And so if you're somebody who's already a little bit nervous, much less fearful of flying, this probably has made things worse. So we have a psychotherapist who's going to be with us for the last half hour of the program next hour, and she will be able to answer questions about things that you can do to, uh, to try to make flying easier, at least palatable, possible. Uh, But for now, we're talking about parents who cross the line. How do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse, uh, from parents and coaches as well? We'd like to hear your stories. Our number is 888-416-8333. Our text number, 226-758-8924. And as you would imagine, we are getting lots of calls, including Vincenzo Morin, uh, who's in Peterborough, Ontario. Hi. Hello. Good afternoon, Ian. Uh, So I see here that you, uh, you've been a soccer referee. Uh, give me a, a, and you started when you were 16 years old. So when you were younger, did you run into coaches or parents who crossed the line? Yes, actually more so when I was younger mm-hmm. um, because you, ref, you start off refereeing um, younger individuals whose parents will show up to the games more often than, you know, someone who is uh, in their 20s. Mm-hmm. So I've experienced that, but most of the abuse that I've experienced has been recently from players themselves um, in their 20s. So, and then tell me about that. Um, Well, as recent as this winter, I referee both indoors in the winter and also outdoors in the summer. But indoors, I find can be a little bit more abuse takes place because you're by yourself in the indoor setting. And I think people are cooped up in the winter and it provides them an opportunity to get out their anger at someone, right? And I think the referees are looked up, looked at as less than human in these situations. So I had an experience where one of the players was, uh, not one of the players, um, most of the players from one team wanted to physically fight me wow. at the end of the game. Um, the coach actually was the one holding one of the players back. And funny enough, Ian, as I was walking away, I, I thought to myself, that player that wanted to fight me was just in crutches. So you just, you just shake your head, you know? And so what, what is the dynamic there? So you have some players who are being aggressive towards you. You're not a member of a team. Are you refing by yourself? Um, in this situation, you are. In the summer, you referee with a team. In yeah. this situation, I actually had the owner, the owner of the facility came in and was threatening to call um, authorities to kick them out. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you're, you're looked at as less than human, the referee, as um, Sean kind of plainly put it before me, that it starts with respect. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, right? Because I think that any kind of, of, of bullying or isms, you know, often have to do with seeing a person as this kind of one-dimensional character because of, you know, their their characteristics, their color, whatever. Um, and so and so it is with referees as well, right? That, that people can go right into your face and yell something that they'd never yell if they knew who you were. Um, you know, but, you, but you're just that guy who, who's roughing their game. 
Um, and so, you know, even though our focus here is on youth referees, it still obviously has to be unsettling and even frightening for somebody like you in your in your mid twenties. Uh, how do you think? Like, how how should the league deal with the situation that that you just encountered with uh, people threatening you? I think that we should be taught to stand up for ourselves. And I'm not saying to retaliate in any sort of physical manner, mm-hmm. but to make it clear that, you know, I'm a human and, and um, you're going to respect me. It's my job to, keep, to make sure you finish the game. But if you don't want to finish the game, if you're going to act like this, then you're not going to finish the game. But and boy, if you're, if, you're by, flying, if, you, you know? if you're by yourself to call mm-hmm. the game like that because some people are, are already abusive – Boy, that I mean, I think that would be kind of uh, intimidating to to kind of face that step. It is. It is definitely intimidating, and a lot of referees kind of struggle with that. We're we're taught to, um, you know, kind of be robotic and and just not say anything and just mm-hmm. give out cards. But sometimes this disciplinary action doesn't work, and it just keeps coming. And so when that doesn't work, you have to use your personality because we are persons. Mm-hmm. And you know, like you said, it's. When you're by yourself, it can be intimidating. And so I think there has to be some kind of training with the young referees coming up because I, I know for a fact that it's hard to get young referees to, to want to ref anymore. You know, they see all yeah. the abuse. Well, thank you very much for calling in. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of good points there, but in particular, the idea that uh, referees, I mean, it's just even as I, I'm about to say it, it sounds so obvious, but I don't think it's obvious to people. The referees are humans, right? They're people. They're, you know, and they're in a lot of cases either getting paid a small amount of money or or volunteering. So they def- in any event, they, they deserve to be treated with respect. Thank you very much for calling us. You're welcome. Let's go to Edmonton now. Joshua Semchuk is on the line. Hi, Joshua. Ian, thank you for doing this topic. Very, such an important topic. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Thank you very much. So I see here you're a minor soccer coach. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of uh, uh, abuse towards uh, young referees and umpires? My, uh, my son is uh, playing U17 soccer. He's also a high school uh, football player. Mm-hmm. And he grew up through the ranks. So he started when he was four years old. My daughter is doing outdoor soccer now. She's also a gymnast and uh, and plays taekwondo. So we, my wife and I, we, we're big believers in how organized sport can help develop kids. Mm-hmm. And we, I've seen over the years that, and I'm now on my second go around for coaching. So back with the U5, U7, as opposed to the U17. And what I've had to implement in the time that I've seen, is very strict rules about how parents are to conduct themselves on the sidelines. We, uh, and this has been developed over years with the Edmonton Minor Soccer Association, the Capital District Minor Football League had to tell us uh, a couple of years ago that should they, should anybody, um, parents that are yelling at the referees, say anything untoward, then the, the team had the possibility of forfeiting a game. And referees can do that uh, in certain games if they decide to. And it's all designed to ensure that the experience of the kids is, is that, that the experience of sports transcends any of that behavior that we're all talking about. Sean was talking about the, the discipline, and you've mentioned the, the respect. But if we can teach kids to respect the game and the processes within it, and and then they become, I believe, they become better people over time. Because not everybody's going to go and be a professional player. And that's what we're trying to emphasize with all of this stuff. And it's fascinating to to have to implement these rules more so for the parents than with mm-hmm. the kids. And some of them push back at first. 
then they see, especially at the younger and younger ages, oh, I get it. We're all sitting on this side of the field together. And the other team's all sitting on that side of the field together. And we have to sit this far back from the sidelines so that we don't um, do anything. We don't say anything untoward or we don't do anything untoward. And that sort of gets people thinking, oh, okay, there's some rules here. And we mm-hmm. talk about what you and I are talking about right now. Um, I'm doing a lot of the talking right now and I appreciate it because I've got a lot on <laughs> my mind. But yeah. Well, well so let me ask you, let me ask you a question, Joshua. Like when you think back to, to years ago, maybe before these policies were implemented, but you mm-hmm. were coaching, anything notable come to mind in terms of a, a, a parent crossing the line? Yeah, there was, so there's two incidences from when my son was younger. And, and and it's interesting, but there was a previous caller who's who sort of alluded to possibly that it's not malicious, that people get caught up in the moment. And I truly believe that. I don't believe necessarily that all parents are, are awful people, mm-hmm. but I think that they get really into it. And one mom was yelling what she thought was a very encouraging thing to her, her, her son, run to the ball, which is a very famous thing for parents to say, run to the ball, run to the ball. Mm-hmm. And he was doing everything that he could. He was five. And he turned around at one point and yelled, I am running to the ball. And she felt really badly about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the mother who, um, a couple of years later, um, says, uh, jumps up and says something that the referee missed the call. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to pull her aside, you know, that kind of thing with what we're talking about with young players. I said, don't forget, they're just, they're just kids. And it's just a flag. And we, they're learning along with our kids, and it's community soccer, that sort of thing. And every single time I've had to do that, the parents are like, oh, my God, I didn't, I didn't realize what I did was, was, was bad. I thought I was just being helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, well, what we're trying to do here, you know, in that, that, this was maybe seven or eight years ago now. So what we're doing more, the coaches that I know in our little community that we're playing around here, mm-hmm. is to remind parents that the best thing that you can say to your kid is you're doing a fantastic job or great kick or you played really well today and let them experience that from parents. Because kids, all they want to hear is from their mom and dad and their grandparents and their uncles and their older mm-hmm. siblings mm-hmm. and their siblings, I'm doing a great job job. I'm, I'm working hard and I'm doing great. And kids are all, especially kids, they're all different. They don't, uh, I, you'll have a, an eight-year-old who can kick a ball stronger than the other eight-year-old, but that eight-year-old's leg muscles has developed a different way yeah. than the other eight-year-old. Or they've touched the ball. I tell parents this all the time. Your, my son has thrown the ball since he was nine years old. And that means he's thrown it 20,000 times more than your son has mm-hmm. at the same time. So as soon as you've done more of it, then let's have that conversation. Yep. So don't yell at your kid for not being able to throw the ball. Right. This other kid has done it more. And so there's all these factors that go into it that yeah. parents drive them insane yeah. and they take it out on their kids. And I've heard parents come back to me over the years saying, I wish I hadn't yelled at my kid. There's a stat that I heard somewhere in, and, and I have no basis of scientific research for this, but it, it's suggested that the majority of kids who leave organized activities, sports especially, the majority of them leave not because of the coach and not because of the kids on their team. It's because of their parents. And they never tell them that until maybe later. Hmm. They said, well, the reason I left is because yep. I was tired of you screaming at me from the stand. All right. Well, and that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good to keep in mind. No, finish your, your sentence. 
Well, and then I've had, I remember one dad coming back to me and said, I, I wish I'd listened to you. That's the reason he left. And I yeah. said, well, it's not too late. You know, let's bring him back. You know, that well, kind of thing. Well, that's a really good message and a good lesson. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are probably going, okay, maybe that's me. Maybe I shouldn't be yelling at my kid. Um, yeah, so, so. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much, Joshua. This is oh, cross country. Yes. A, yeah. Ian, just on a really personal note, um, my mom passed away this summer. She was an enormous fan of yours. You're, mm. you're a big, you're a big, we're big fans of yours in my house, but she, she loved listening to you. She loved watching you when you were hosting the national and uh, it's an honor to speak with you, sir. Well, sad to hear, uh, sorry to hear about your mom, but thank you very much for passing that on. I really appreciate it, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you, sir. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanamansing. And our question this week, how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? Our phone number, 888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck or text us at 226-758-8924. Uh, our next caller is also in Edmonton, Sean Billado. Hi, Sean. Hi, Ian. How are, how are you today? Good. I, I see in the notes here you're a hockey executive. What's your perspective on our topic this week? Yeah, I spent uh, seven or eight years on different hockey boards across BC as well, seven or eight years coaching hockey when uh, when my daughter was playing. Um, you know, there's obviously been a lot of really nice conversation and some good ideas shared from uh, some of the previous callers and guests. Uh, one of the things that we had done in one of the associations I was a member of is when we had a parent who, or a spectator who'd been asked to leave a game, in order to come back, they had to take a refereeing course and agree to go out and become a referee for a set number of games. And what we found is that really changed their perspective on A, what it takes to be a ref, uh, B, uh, how difficult it is when you're on that ice level to referee, uh, as well as it helped solve another issue we had, which was uh, having adult refs. Huh. And then it showed every, everyone else that, you know, this is an, a potential outcome yeah. if you decide to behave inappropriately yeah. uh, towards towards players. Yeah, so a win-win-win. So, so let's let's break that down a little bit, Sean. So, first of all, give me an example um, of be uh, an actual example of behavior that would have led to that parent uh, being forced to do the refereeing course. So, give me an example of something that happened where someone crossed the line. Yeah, so that that example was was literally a parent standing there and berating a teenage referee, uh, name calling, uh, just things that that are not acceptable in any facet of life. Certainly not in this case, it was a teenage ref. And, you know, one of the conversations we had with this parent specifically was, you know, the referee was 14 and, you know, and, and his child was 13. And so you sit there and you look and go, it's not acceptable. <laughs> you wouldn't accept that for someone to talk to your child like that. Mm-hmm. So why would you speak to someone else's child? And even beyond that, there's just a basis of respect in society that, that we all deserve. And that fell far short of that. And how do you think, what do you think the end result was after you had that talk with him, after he had to take the referee course, after he actually had to referee himself as an adult? Uh, do, yeah. What, what do you think the result of that process was? It, it, it was it was really good. The next year he joined our board as huh. the head referee and wow. stayed on as a ref and proceeded to have conversations with parents in our beginning of the year coach-parent meetings to just describe he was one of those bad parents. And now that he's been a ref, he understands the other side of it. Hmm. And uh, I, we look at that as a huge 
huge success story. Yeah, Sean, it is a huge success story. If he's listening, by all means, give us a call. But thank you very much for calling us, Sean. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for having this uh, conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. So our number, in case he does want to call or any of you would like to call, one 888 416 How do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Now, if you're listening to our show and you're thinking, I am one of those parents at my kid's game who gets excited and maybe has said things that aren't so nice here and there. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned, you can call us at one 416 8333 But also, you may want to pay special attention to our next guest because uh, she may have some insights for you. Brenly Shapiro is a sports psychologist and a performance coach. She works with NHL and OHL teams and leads workshops to help sports parents be on their best behavior in the stands. And her son plays high-level hockey. Uh, we've reached her in Toronto and Brenly will be sticking around with us to respond to some of your questions or comments for the remainder of this portion of the program. Hi, Brenly. Hello, how are you? I'm doing really well. Um, we're hearing stories uh, about uh, athletes, about parents, about coaches, about uh, uh, referees in, in recreational leagues. Now, you also work, as I mentioned, with young elite athletes where the stakes are higher. Do you find that parents and coaches are more abusive in that context? I do. I think this, you know... Interestingly enough, I do think it starts at a young age, but especially in the competitive realm, the more competitive it gets, the more that's on the line, the more intense. I just, you know, just multiply the numbers. I think the intensity and the emotion um, invested just gets stronger and stronger. So help me understand how someone who, if you pass them on the street, might seem absolutely normal, um, suddenly is in the stands, even if it is a high stakes game and their face is red with anger and they're yelling stuff at, at a referee, like they're just, they're just totally different people. What's going on there? Yeah, I, I say it all the time, you know, when we, um, all these normal people, you know, we carry normal jobs and normal life and then we step into the sports realm there's something kind of fascinating that happens when you cross the line into the sports arena. Um, I, you know, people turn into all kinds of characters, seemingly calm people. We see so many different personalities come out in the sports world. And I will always say that sport, it, it's almost the recipe for parents. It's like a perfect storm. And the reason for that is, you know, if we take a step backwards a little bit and just look at the psychology of being a sports fan. So let's remove the kids for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're a sports fan, you have your team. We see some diehard sports fans. I think sport brings out so much emotion, so much intensity in people. And that's when you, there's actually no real life connection. Like if you're a fan of an NHL hockey team or a professional sports team, it really doesn't impact your day-to-day -day life in any way, shape, or form, but yet we see people become so attached to it. And I think sports is an incredible outlet, and it gives so many positive things. It provides people with a connection. It's something bigger than themselves. It gives people an identity. You know, you automatically see somebody wearing the same jersey, and you are you have a connection to people. So mm -hmm. there's a sense of belonging in it. Um it's an escape from everyday life. You know, yeah. it just provides you with something so completely different. And yet that has nothing to do with actual day-to-day -day functioning of your life. Now let's throw the kids back in the mix. Now we're talking about a relationship that really matters to a parent. 
there's, you know, the time, the effort, the involvement, the money that goes into it. There's a lot of sacrifice. And so now, now it has a direct impact on your life, on your children's life. And so parents turn into these different creatures because it is, you know, take all the things that I just talked about with a regular sports fan and just multiply it, I don't know, a hundredfold because this relationship counts. And as a mm-hmm. parent, you have a natural protective instinct, um, you know, to, to stand mm-hmm. up for your kid and be protective. So recipe for a perfect storm. We are live here with Brenly Shapiro, a sports psychologist and registered psychotherapist. And our question today, how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents or coaches cross the line? Our number is one 888 8333 Or you can go to cbc.ca slash Brenly, uh, what advice do you have from your psychologist's perspective to make the stands a little safer and a little bit more Sane, maybe that's not the word I should mm-hmm. use, but you know what I mean. A little bit, yeah. uh, a little bit quieter. What, what, what advice yeah. do you have for parents? You know, I do want to say that I think that parents, you know, underneath it, for the most part, have good intentions and good motivation. So first and foremost, I think at, at the foundational level, I just want parents to know that we're all at risk, right? I mean, I too, this is my professional field. I have raised, you know, athletes. But I think every parent has to recognize first and foremost that we are all at risk of losing control and perspective. And I think once we can actually acknowledge and appreciate that, we're going to have a lot more power to be able to do something with it. So to me, it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, who you are, what you do. We all have the tendency to be at risk just because of the nature of sport and the intense emotions and protection that come along with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think once we have that, I like to start with just awareness. Um, We need to gain some awareness. And I will always ask parents, when you're outside the sports arena, literally just ask yourself the question, what does your game day behavior look like? Right? Because when we're in a calm, logical, you know, brain space, we can answer that question a whole lot better. And if we actually just take a moment to think about it and, you know, if you don't know what it is, just ask your kid because they'll tell you what it is. Um, or, you know, how do you think the other people in the stands might identify you? Are you the screamer? Or are you like, who are you when you're at the ring? So I think just by asking that question and gaining some awareness, it does give you a different sense of perspective. And it takes you out of that just emotional mindset. And you can start to approach the situation a lot more logically. So that is first and foremost foundational for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we know better we can actually start to do better. So. Yeah. So there's lots to talk about here. I have lots more questions, mm-hmm. Brenly, but you kindly have agreed to stay with us until uh, the bottom of the next hour before our AMA on a separate topic begins. So l- let's leave it there for now. And and I will come okay. back to you and also invite you to weigh in on what we hear from some of the callers, Brenly Shapiro, a sports psychologist and performance coach. And our question on cross-country checkup, how do we protect young referees and umpires from abuse? What have you seen in terms of coaches or parents crossing the line? Our next caller is Pram. Subramanian. Uh, uh, Pram, spell, uh, pronounce your last name for me. Uh, Subramanian. Subramanian. Okay, thank you. Um, so you were a, a soccer referee at, at one point. What, what uh, experiences have you had? Uh, 
Uh, thank you, and uh, lovely speaking with you. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to share a couple of things. Sure. One from uh, my experience, and two, you know, my observations uh, while I've refereed. Uh, and one of them, the, the latter part, might uh, point to a question for uh, uh, Dr. Shapiro as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I, I worked uh, for a tech company, and I took to refereeing because uh, of my passion for soccer. And then, uh, uh, you know, the, the, at the grassroots level, you have tiers, so the, the lower age groups and then the senior age groups. Mm-hmm. So I refereed mostly in the lower age groups, and for the seniors, I was mostly on the lines as, as an alignsman. Uh, and then I have been on the receiving side of, uh, you know, very aggressive behavior from coaches, uh, even in the case of young boys. So one instance was wherein, uh, you know, the, uh, a foul was given to the opposing team, but then I needed to caution uh, a player of, uh, you know, this particular referee, uh, this particular coach's team. And, uh, you know, he became very aggressive, and I had to caution him and tell him that if that persists, uh, I would need to meet out a second caution. But that was more situational and an example, and then there are different manifestations. Uh, more in an expanded sense, what I do feel is uh, soccer, as perhaps hockey is, it is a contact sport, uh, So and, and foul is an integral part of it. There are rules to limit for fouls and caution fouls, so it's not going away from the game. But it's more about not just awareness, but how we embrace uh, prioritizing the respect for the sport and the respect for the official over and above uh, a very blinded level of uh, competitiveness. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I have observed in terms of that psyche is parents get emotionally invested for the success of their children, but then somewhere part of what they impart to the child is also to be competitive not to give the edge to the opposing team, which is part of cultivating a winning mentality, and which is where my question for Dr. Shapiro also resides, which is where do we draw that line between, uh, you know, imparting uh, that competitive mindset and ensuring that it doesn't go beyond the desirable boundary uh, in terms of the child taking to... uh, you know, that the kind of behavior which would be tantamount to I will get away with anything, a foul is allowed mm-hmm. as long as I win. And and that also manifests in the form of abuse towards officials, towards opposing players. Yeah. And, and, you know, definitely Dr. Shapiro would know more. So so that's my question. Uh, as yeah, that's you. a really good question. Uh, and, and I'm going to say your name again because I, I did uh, stumble on it before. Param Subramanian uh, in Calgary. Thank you very much for calling. Yeah, most definitely. All right, let's go back to uh, to to Brenly Shapiro. Um, we have about two minutes in this portion of the program, and then we have to take a break and uh, for our television audience. But uh, within those two minutes, uh, Brenly, let me ask you about that. I think it's a really interesting point. How do you, especially at the higher levels, the higher echelons of competitiveness, which you know a lot about, um, how do you get players to keep a line straight in their head between being super competitive and doing almost everything they can to win, but not doing everything they can to win, like still being civil towards officials? How how do you get them to draw that line? Yeah, I think that's a great, it's really a great question. And I think I'm going to highlight as, you know, being a high performing athlete, one of 
one of the most important things that you need to be successful is emotional control and regulation. And so, you know, it's a mental skill that we have to teach because as soon as your emotions get the best of you, and that doesn't mean that you don't be competitive, right? There's a difference. But we want sort of controlled aggression. That's that's a key term that we use all the time. We don't want this loose, um, like uncontrollable aggression because that at the end of the day is going to hurt the athlete as well. And so a skill that we like to teach athletes is how to regulate emotions. So um, if they're being overly aggressive, I mean, what's going to happen? The consequence is they're going to get a penalty or, you know, they're, they're, they're losing control of their performance. And so they're being taken away with an emotional reaction and they're simply reacting in a situation as opposed to actually choosing how to respond. So, you know, I like to create intention with the athlete. Who are you? Who do you want to be? Right. And what does that actually look like? So having a game plan, learning how to manage your emotions in those situations is really key to um, I think moving through it in a positive way. Yeah, Brindley Shapiro, thank you very much. And you will be with us for, for the next half hour. And I will come back to you, especially as callers uh, raise some questions uh, for you or just uh, to get you to comment on some of the things that they're talking about. Um, let me take a look at uh, some of the social media reaction. Craig Baird uh, on X uh, Twitter. The historian, I think, right? I used to umpire baseball when I was a teenager. I had one parent throw their watch at me when I had to end the game because it went over time in a tournament. Another time I had my truck tire slash. That is incredible. Not to mention all the rude comments and profanity that parents yelled at me. Robert Gunn uh, connected via air check. He's in Toronto. Is it possible that sports is no longer looked at as a way to stay active, but a ticket to financial success if you reach the elite level? If you're in that frame of mind, to lash out when things don't go your way is probably the first option to vent. And Daniel Reed uh, via Aircheck, he's in Langley, British Columbia, BC basketball referee in second year. I've witnessed and been subjected to abuse from parents and coaches. It's really hard on the mental health of officials. Referees make mistakes and miss calls. Most referees are doing their best. Unfortunately, verbally expressing disagreement with referees has become a regular part of youth sport. So we have so much more to talk about and very interested in hearing specific examples of where coaches and and uh, and parents cross the line and uh, to hear from young referees about what it was like to be on the other side. But we're going to say goodbye now to our TV viewers on CBC News Network. Rosemary Barton Live is next. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup, live on CBC Radio, 30 minutes left on our main topic. And then we are going to switch our attention to the impact of a news story that grabbed a lot of attention when it broke just over a week ago. A door panel on a Boeing 737 MAX 9 blew open during a flight that led to rapid decompression in the cabin. And in turn, it made some already nervous flyers even more anxious. I put a message out on uh, Twitter X and heard back from a lot of people very quickly who who felt that way. One person wrote, 
I force myself to fly. From the time I make the reservation, I become uneasy. My doctor gave me anxiety meds to fly, but even with that on board, I'm anxious. Maybe you have to fly as well. Despite your anxiety, what sort of solution do you turn to? And what questions do you have? Give us a call at 1-888-416-8333. You can text us as well, 226-758-8924. We have a psychotherapist who will be in, and she has said to us that she is really looking forward to hearing your questions and comments and providing advice. She does have patients who are wrestling with fear of flying. So that is in half an hour. But until then, we continue to ask this question. How do you protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? Uh, our next call is from Ottawa. Carson Morin is uh, is calling. Hi, Carson. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, and uh, you, I see in the notes here, you started hating playing hockey because of your parents. Yeah. So I think Brentley had a lot of good points about the competitiveness and things like that. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't see is that the real victims in all of this, yes, are the referees, but it's also the players, the kids, mm-hmm. right? Because like I know personally for my father, he was one of those people, he was just always angry. He was the one yelling at everybody. He was yelling at the refs and the coaches and other parents as well. But there was one time where, you know, it got really heated and then I ended up, I was a goalie. Um, when I was younger, I played competitive rep B, uh, played double A, triple A, played everything, house league, the whole mm-hmm, works. Mm-hmm. And he would get so angry, more angry than we would. And one time he took my backup goalie stick and tried to swing it at one of the referees. Oh. And yeah, and it caused a whole bunch of drama. And then the coach got involved and my dad took it out on the coach. And then long story short, I wasn't able to play for the competitive league anymore for the rep team, for the rep B team. And then that coach ended up moving up to the AAA team, so I couldn't play for that league either. Mm. So it kind of put me in a position where I couldn't even play hockey anymore, you know? Oh, there's so much about this story that uh, that is disturbing. Um, and so, I mean, so I, how did that feel for you as, as that played out? I I felt, like, embarrassed and kind of ashamed, like, like, how could he do that to me? Mm-hmm. You know, how could how could he or any of the other parents? Because we had a lot of parents that were very aggressive because of the competitiveness. And, like, we as the players, you know, we're trying to win the game. We're taking our aggression out on the other players, which we're not supposed to, but that's just how it turns out to be. And, like, I've had teammates that have fought referees because of bad calls. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just, it, it sucked. Yeah, Having to kind of forfeit a sport that I was actually good at, that I enjoyed, that kept me out of trouble and kept me in a position of my life that had that structure, like Brenly was saying, like Brenly was saying, sorry. Mm -hmm. So, and so, you know, I, I, a lot of parents and kids have a lot of conversations in the car, heading back home after a game, you know, advice about, kid, here's what you should have done. If I was on the ice, here's what I would have done. Or, Mm -hmm. hey kid, you know, you, you sort of, didn't do what you, you know, you, you didn't act properly in that situation. But in this case, what, what was the, was there any conversation in the car on the way back after your dad got involved uh, with, with the hockey stick there? I I was more just in shock of everything. Mm-hmm. 
like I don't think there. I, from what I can recall, this is almost ten years ago, but like I can't really remember if there even was a conversation. Yeah, it was just more like now. Now what? So what do I do? What do I do now? Yeah. So you know, you so you're ten years on. You're you're an adult now, and and when you think about it, how how do you, how do you think leagues should deal with parents who cross the line? I don't want to be the one to say this, but I think that they should just either not be allowed in the rink mm-hmm. or, you know, find a new hobby of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tricky because you want your parents there. You want to look good. You want to, you know, your parents to be proud of you. But like, if I was a parent, I'm not yet, but if I was, I would, I would just try and help t- tell these other parents, like, listen, like all you're doing is hurting the children right now. Mm-hmm. attacking the coaches, attacking the players, getting on the kids uh, on their backs, telling them to go harder. Obviously, the competitiveness, they want their kid to be successful. But, you know, yelling at the ref and yelling at this, you're just punishing the children. Yeah. Because the fallout lands on them, ultimately, at the end of all that, in my experience. And so how did your uh, your minor hockey career end? I ended up only being able to either leave the city and play competitive somewhere else, even though that kind of trailed me because I'm banned from other, uh, these two, uh, leagues mm-hmm. or play house league, which I can't get any recognition there. Mm-hmm. So I ended up moving to Detroit and tried to play hockey there. And I was just so bummed out about it that I just ended up stopped playing. I stopped playing hockey because of it. I'm so sorry to hear that because it's such a fantastic game. And if you love it and you're good at it, you should be able to play it and uh, to not be able to play because of the conduct of somebody else, you know, especially somebody in your family just mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, is heartbreaking. Uh, so th- thank you for calling. Thank you for your perspective. Um, but I'm so, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. A- any kind of last comment from you? You know, support your children, you know, yeah. because sports is structured and I, I like, I love what Brindley was saying about it, about the competitiveness and the structure, because once these kids stop playing hockey, they lose that structure and they lose that support in their own minds. I feel, um, to continue. And that kind of affects you as a person going to school, continuing to go to university. I feel like at some way it is all connected. Thank you so much for calling. It is such mm-hmm. an important perspective. And I know a lot of people are listening and, uh, and I, and I hope your comments have an impact. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, our next call here is uh, from Guelph, Ontario, Will Barretts. Hi, Will. Hey, how are you? Uh, see, you're, you're still a relatively young man, 21. You've been an umpire since you were 12. Uh, did you run into any situations where, where people crossed the line in dealing with you? Yeah, I did. And you know what? It's interesting. My very first day, I'll go and I'll paint you the picture. The first game I ever did, I was 12 years old. I want to paint a bit of a picture in your head. I'm sitting there in these oversized, big gray umpire pants, the shirt I'm swimming in. And I think the second or third play, I had a, I had a young mom who was very, very upset with me. These kids are eight, nine years old. I was 12 years old, so not much older than they were. And she was kind of in the stands there just absolutely berating me. And it was interesting because she was, in this case, just completely wrong. She had a fundamental misunderstanding of the rule, and she was getting mad at a call that I had gotten right, and I want you. It's very, very difficult for me at 12 years old to go and deal with that. It was an absolute shot to my confidence. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky. I had a lot of very good role models in my life. I had a lot of very good older umpires who were able to mentor me and walk me through this, and that helped me stay with it. But for a lot of kids who don't have that figure in their life and their 
officiating career super young, it's very, very easy for them to quit. A good friend of mine and I both started umpiring together that age 12 year, and he only lasted a year because of those similar experiences where it's just really, really difficult to go out there every single day and have people tell you you're wrong to your face. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the thing is, you, you were saying that you got that call right when you were 12. You must have gotten some calls wrong as well. You know, you get berated because you make a mistake. But, I mean, that's the reason you have umpires and not computers working there. It's a human call and you're going to make mistakes. Absolutely. I think that really brings up a great point about the role that coaches play in the efficient participant and spectator relationship. And that's to go and set the tone for a lot of people there. Um, I had a coach, I'm very fortunate, I played baseball as well, who made it very clear to us that if there was an issue with the call, it was his job to go and intervene. And never once did he raise his voice at an official. He would walk out there very calmly and they'd have a conversation. And that ends up being a a much better way to go and resolve that situation. Mm -hmm. The coach is really, really instrumental there in shaping how parents view an official. You can really, really, really quickly tell your players that, no, I'm going to interact here, and it's not your place. And that's a great way to go and shape their careers moving forward. I also think we need to go and look at the culture surrounding a lot of these sports. If you go and look at the top level, for example, Aaron Boone is the, is the manager for the New York Yankees. Mm-hmm. He's infamous for his tirades against umpires. It goes viral on YouTube, millions of views. People love watching. It's a bit of a source of entertainment. It's watching Aaron Boone go and get angry. You also have to think a lot of these kids are watching the exact same game on TV and they see the coach going and getting fired up at these officials and it's almost seen as part of the culture of the sport is to get mad at an official. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, maybe it is at that level, but then coaches bring that same attitude down to minor league baseball, minor league hockey, minor league soccer, recreational soccer. And it's the fact that all of these kids, they want to go and be the best. Their parents want the best for their children. They want them to be extremely competitive. And so there's a huge amount of responsibility on that coach to try and make it seem as professional as possible. And maybe there's that pressure there to go and get mad at the umpire because that's what I see on TV. Yeah, the no, that's, is, yeah. So I'm sorry, go ahead, Will. Absolutely. No, no, I was just going to say, the question is, yeah, the coach plays an incredibly important role here, but are there maybe more systemic changes we need to make at a major league level? to go and stop these things trickling down into our youth sports. Yeah, I imagine if a major league manager or two or five, you know, came out after a game and said, I really respect the decision they made. I I disagree with it, but I understand how tough it is. Actually, you know, even as I say that out loud, I think I have heard some some coaches in some professional sports uh, acknowledge the fact that people will, uh, will, you know, will make mistakes or I'll disagree. We can do it in a civil way. Will, one last thing, because I think it's a point that we, we haven't addressed yet on the program, uh, for that 12 or 13-year-old kid who's listening now who's wondering if they should ump or ref, uh, what do you say to them? I say absolutely go for it. I love umpiring. I love being able to get out there and involved. I do it with my friends. It is an absolute kind of fun. It's exceptionally rewarding. I feel that I've become a much better person because of it. And so if you're listening, if you're 13, you're 14, you have an offer from a coach to go out there and ref a recreational hockey game, absolutely go for it. Thank you so much for calling in, Will. You're very welcome. Thank you. Let's go to Coburg, Ontario now. Mark Rob on the line. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you doing, Ian? I'm doing well. I, I see in the notes here you have a story about a junior hockey game you were at in the 1980s. T- tell us about that. Yes, indeed. My, my son played uh, junior B hockey for Markham, and my former husband and myself would travel wherever they played, whether it be Kingston or Sudbury, wherever we 
we loved to go to his games. Mm-hmm. But one night, I think we were in Woodbridge, but I'm not absolutely certain of that. And my husband was getting extra exuberant and not at all positive and just blasting the referee for his lack of knowledge and some of the calls he made or didn't make. And and quietly, this lady came over to him and with such poise and calm put him straight and said, you know, you're not doing anybody any good and you really should be thinking of the players and walked away. And somebody sitting nearby said, that's Ron McLean's wife. <laughs> and he he was in his very early days and yeah. was, I guess he loved a referee too. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy, did that shut up everybody in the, wow. in the area. That is fantastic. I, yeah. I mean, you know, Pretty impressive that it was Ron McLean, but I, but the other part of that is that that it's not just a guy wearing stripes with a helmet out on the ice that you can yell at. It's a human being, right? It's a person, exactly. And then you feel different about that. So that that is, uh, and and do you think that changed, like his approach going forward? Your 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 former husband's approach going forward. <laughs> or- um, it wasn't a permanent change. No, it was not. <laughs> no. All right. Well, you know what, Mark, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much okay. for sharing your story. That uh, That's fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you're listening to Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanamansing. We're live in Vancouver. And for the next 15 minutes, we're asking this question. How do you protect young referees and umpires from abuse? Have you seen parents and coaches cross the line? And in 15 minutes, we we change to our AMA, where we're going to talk about uh, being nervous when you fly, how best to cope with that. And we have a psychotherapist who has patients, uh, and she has conversations with them on that very topic, and she's very happy to answer your questions and share advice. You can use the same numbers for both the hockey referee topic and the AMA, one 888-416-8333. And for the next 15 minutes, uh, Brenly Shapiro is with us. She is a psychologist and she's dealt with a lot of these issues. And and Brenly, you might anticipate what I'm going to ask you about. And it's that that young man who told us the story about uh, the impact that that his father's conduct had on him, that it basically drove the the child, the kid, out of competitive hockey. Uh, What were you thinking when you heard that story? Yeah, I mean, first off, you know, it's so shameful. And unfortunately, it happens a lot more often than we think. I think it's really common. Um, And, you know, I I appreciate the courage of coming on here and sharing that story. Um, I I think that parents, again, they don't get it. And that's why I'm just I'm so big on self-awareness and really understanding the impact of what you're doing. I think in that case, one thing that was just resonating for me is at the time, his father probably thought he was 100% correct in what he was doing and his anger and his behaviors and not really understanding the impact that that behavior has and the consequences um, that are going to come of it. Uh, You know, one thing I want to say to to that um, athlete or to any other athletes out here that that experience that as well, um, that they too have to recognize, and that's really hard at a young age with nobody guiding them, but that their behavior, the behavior of their parents is not a reflection of them. And that's a really difficult thing for a child to understand. Um, You know, I think in terms of consequences, I think there should be consequences. I think the dad should not be allowed in 
the arena, but I don't think that that consequence should extend to the child that, you know, didn't really have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully there are now today programs like that I do, or there are people that you could work with. You know, I run a parent masterclass just to help parents understand not only, you know, why they're at risk, the impact of it, but also what can you do to, to better support and to effectively raise an elite athlete because there is that competitive piece to it. So there is there are programs out there and there are there are ways and hopefully we can support these athletes along with the parents because we're asking, you know, people to do things that maybe they just don't have the coping skills to manage. Even in the last story, the the behavior didn't last. It might have, you know, got him <laughs> quiet, the husband for a moment. But we need to make sure that people have the right skills and strategies to be able to manage these intense emotions that come along with sport. Mm -hmm. And in, in your practice, in your experience, what is it that motivates a parent to come to you and get that kind of advice? Yeah, I think they want to know. I think some parents, you know, it's interesting. Often one parent will recognize that the other parent loses control or perspective. You know, if you have somebody that can be a bit of a mirror for you to say, hey, like this doesn't seem great. That's always really helpful. And sometimes people just recognize on their own that they're in it for all the right reasons, but they realize that they don't know what to say or they don't know how to handle these situations. Um, and so I think they just want the best for their kid and they want to know how how to be able to do that. And that's mm -hmm. really what motivates them to come. Brent Brenly Shapiro, thank you very much. We're going to come back uh, to you uh, at least one more time before we uh, finish dealing with this topic. Uh, let me go back to the phones, though, because we have so many people who are calling in. Joshua Smith is in Toronto. Hi, Josh, or in Ottawa, actually. Hi, Joshua. Hi, how are you, Ian? Good. So you've seen this issue from various perspectives, including having been a, a youth referee. Did you see parents cross the line? <laughs> uh, more times than I care to remember or count. I... Uh, I've been refereeing over two decades. Uh, when I started out as a referee in New Brunswick, um, we always refereed on our own. We, we didn't have enough referees to have assistant referees, so you're always by yourself. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, um, yeah, you were, you were alone with, you know, the better odd 30-something players and coaches and fans, and you're the only one there on your team, so to speak. So uh, lots of people um, unfortunately took took advantage and took liberties of the fact that you're a young person out there refereeing and uh, you may not be doing a perfect job, especially in your first couple of years. And so as a result, uh, you made mistakes and uh, they, they have no uh, issue with, uh, with, with taking out that abuse on you. And you've heard it. I mean, we've heard it from so many people calling in. It's not a soccer only problem. This happens in a lot of sports. Um, and uh, you know, it, it seems to also, as another caller uh, mentioned earlier, be, Demonstrated the umpire actually demonstrated on television in professional sports, and so mm -hmm. people, especially kids and parents, they see it there. Coaches, they see it there, and it ends up being mimicked essentially. Yeah, and and you know, so many good points there, Joshua. But one I want to underscore because we haven't, I don't think, talked about it enough uh, so far, and that is the idea of being alone. Like, so when my kids yeah. refed or when they were linesmen, at least they were in a group of three. And I used to think, okay, well, you know, you you, you literally have a couple of people there who are on, you know, who have your back. They're kind of on your team. But to yeah. be a, to be a kid alone, the only soccer referee, and have people turn on you, that's got to be a very lonely feeling. And yet you stuck with it, did you? Uh, yeah, I did stick with it. And it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. One, I, I enjoyed it. I happened to enjoy it. But also 
the support I got from the local refereeing community. So um, where I started refereeing in, uh, in Sackville, New Brunswick, um, Ian, you're familiar with that place? I sure um, am. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was a student so you at never got you never you never got any abuse in in Sackville. I'm sure people are all kind there. <laughs> uh, never from the from the locals. All the visiting teams, of okay. course. <laughs> all right. Yeah, but uh, high school soccer there was uh, certainly no uh, there was no exception made there for for abuse from fans and parents. One time, uh, I won't name the school, but a visiting uh, school, we had to remove the entire uh, uh, bench of fans in order to continue the game because of the abuse and the chanting against the referee and the opposing team. It was, it was egregious. Wow. Um, but my, my local community there, it's a small place, as you know, and a uh, you know, small group of referees covering that little territory. Um, so, you know, you, there was one in particular who was a higher level referee who, you know, really took it upon himself for no extra, you know, recognition or remuneration, I can tell you, uh, in order to, to help us young referees, and after particularly tough games, especially, he would take us and, you know, walk us through and say, okay, what, you know, what can you do differently next time? Or, you know, here's how I deal with it whenever, you know, these kind of situations happen to me. Um, and when I moved to Calgary after that, uh, we had a fantastic referee community there as well that did the same thing. And I, and I think that without those supports, and, uh, you know, the question today being how do we, how do we support youth referees and, 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 and officials in, in sports, you have to have that, that community support. If you feel like you're on your own, literally or figuratively, if you just mm-hmm. feel like you show up at games and you send in your reports and no one from the league and no one from the community is there to support you, um, no wonder, of course, that over two-thirds of referees, not only in hockey, as was as mentioned earlier, but also in sports like soccer, uh, quit within two years of starting. Yeah, really well said, Joshua. Thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. So references in Joshua's call to New Brunswick. Our next caller, Judy Shelton, is in New Brunswick as well in St. Stephen. Hi, Judy. Hi. We're at that time in the show where I'm going to have to quickly go to calls and probably not give each caller uh, their dues. So I apologize in advance. But what would you like to say about uh, the way I that I just wanted referees... to let you know yeah. back in the 80s, yep. I was head coach in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Oh, yeah. And I would get parents right up in your face. Mm. Because you weren't treating their kid the right way and all that stuff. Uh, a lot of parents I found, because I've coached baseball, I was ex-military wife, so we mm-hmm. were in a lot of provinces and whatnot. Um, I found the parents forget that 90% of the time, these coaches and referees are volunteer. Yeah. They're not getting paid for what they're doing. And some of them would get absolutely, like, you, like you've said on the show, they'd get carried away, you know. Mm. But uh, no, it was it was interesting doing it. Yeah. And, and um, how about uh, a quick message, Judy, to to parents who may be listening and maybe they're kind of starting now to wonder if if they're the person that's crossed the line. What what advice do you have for them? For the parents? Yeah. Stay in your seat and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Seriously. Right. Let them play the game. It's just a game yep. for children to learn. And they can't learn if there's chaos about, right? Coach Shelton says, stay in your seat and shut your mouth. I, that's, that's good <laughs> advice. I appreciate it. There you go. Have a good day. Hey, all right, you too. Let's go to Adrian Smith, who's in Peterborough, Ontario. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good. And I do apologize to you as well in advance that uh, time is running short. But I see here that, and I'm sorry to see this, that that as a referee, you actually were assaulted on the soccer pitch. 
I was, yeah. I was, uh, I've was. i held just about every role in soccer from the ground up. Uh, at the time, I was a varsity soccer player at Lakehead University in Aurelia while being the head referee at a soccer club in Hamilton. I, I was doing a game in Bracebridge, and I was assaulted on, on field after a parent felt that I wasn't protecting their, their daughter. Wow. And that parent took it upon themselves after I had the coach remove them to uh, – approached me in the parking lot and I was locked in my car and he prevented me from leaving the parking lot at that field. Wow. Now, now you, you, if I heard you correctly, you were an athlete as well. So, I mean, like, did you end up kind of defending yourself, taking things in your own hands? Uh, I think I had a pretty level head, to be honest, being mm-hmm. a, a head referee, I had seen a lot of, uh, a lot of what had gone on over the years in soccer with a lot of different parents and, and coaches and and, you know, I, I managed the situation fairly well. I had two assistant referees who were both under 13 and, you know, kind of learning from me that day. And so I, I think, you know, knowing that it was easier to keep a, a cool head. Mm-hmm. Adrian, can I ask you, because uh, you certainly have the experience to answer this question, um, the short version of advice you have for trying to stop this kind of behavior? I think we've seen some good changes in soccer. Um they are taking it a lot more seriously. I walked away from refereeing for about five years because of this incident, because I mm-hmm. felt it wasn't addressed. The district soccer association suspended the person and fined the club and Ontario soccer actually overturned that ruling on appeal. And that was enough for me to say, you know what, if you're not going to support us, why are we, why are we here? And so mm-hmm. I think the two pieces of advice I have is those individuals who involve themselves in the game in this way are super harmful and looking at long-term suspensions for them goes a long way. It is a deterrent. Uh, the other piece is also empowering young referees. Um, you know, I was in my 20s at the time and, and had a good enough head to be able to manage it. But when that happens to someone who's, you know, 12 or 13 to say to them, we'll just cancel the game and leave, it's much harder than it sounds. So I think these clubs and districts need to put officials at games at random one of the things that they often do is send folks after the fact once mm-hmm. something's already happened, and that's great. But if you're sending people on the regular to these games, they're going to see these things happening and they can support the referees better uh, and back us up to be able to, uh, to stop this and really get it rid out of the game. Adrian, thank you very much for calling. Thank you so much, Ian. Take care. Let's go to Prince Rupert, British Columbia now. Mike Murphy is calling. And Mike, uh, I only have a couple of minutes left, but you have a really important point to make. And, uh, and so, uh, so first of all, hello, thanks for calling. Yeah. How you and good, good. And what would you like to say about, uh, about this issue? Uh, yeah, I think it just needs to start, uh, uh, with the product you see on TV. Like mm-hmm. hockey Canada can only do so much to take that out of the sport, uh, at the actual, you know, amateur level. But what we're seeing on TV nowadays, it's just making it worse. Right, uh, soccer is getting really popular in Canada. People are watching Premier League, and those guys put their hands on the referee. Right, mm-hmm. they put their hands on their shoulder to turn them around so they can scream at them in their face. And then you see in hockey, like CBC, our broadcasting, you know, when they go into intermission, that's all they seem to be talking about now is the refereeing. This mm-hmm. missed call, that missed call. Why wasn't that called? We all got this uh, instant replay, video replay. So they think they should be making every single call. It should be perfect. Yeah. I've never seen a hockey game where there wasn't a missed call at any level. Absolutely. Every NHL game I watch, there's missed calls. Yeah. 
There's 12 guys on the ice flying, and there's yeah. only two referees, right? Yeah. You're going to miss stuff. you got to accept that. Well, occasionally, now, kids yeah. kids are watching the TV. Yep. They're watching all these people complaining, and so they take that to the rink, and they do the same thing. Yeah, that's a really good point, Mike. Thank you very much. I, I'm going to leave it there, but uh, I hope people do listen to what you have to say, Mike. And anyone who's had the, the, the good fortune of being at a professional game at ice level, like, you know, really good tickets, and you see how fast that game is, it's amazing that there aren't more calls, but you're right, right from the very top with the the Sportsnet uh, games, TSN games, they should make that uh, point very clear. Let's go back to Brenly Shapiro one last time. We only have about 90 seconds left, uh, Brenly, but I just wonder if you can maybe have a last word here on this very complicated issue. Yeah, I think just, you know, there's been so many good things that have come up. I think support for the parents in terms of having a game plan to come into the rink and the ability to take a deep breath or vent to another trusted adult, like just have a plan for what you're going to do with it. And we need to humanize the referees too. I think that's come up a lot. This just dehumanization. Um, Refs are human. They're going to make mistakes like anybody else. And then finally, I just want to say, Support for the refs, I think, is so important as well. Let's give them the right skills and coping strategies. I think there's been a big increase in anxiety among refs, too, from the younger ages all the way up, certainly to college level. Um, So I think they need some training as well how to handle those situations. So I think if everybody could just educate themselves, gain awareness, and actually want to do better, then, then we're going somewhere. Yeah, so well said. Perfect note to end this portion of the program, Brenly. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Friendly Shapiro, sports psychologist and performance coach. And uh, we, uh, yeah, really appreciate her perspective. It's time for Ask Me Anything, the fear of flying edition. of flights canceled, planes grounded, inspections finding fresh safety concerns with the Boeing 737 MAX 9. A large section of one aircraft blew out moments after takeoff. It was just really scary because you know that something is clearly wrong, but as passengers, we didn't know what. If I'm afraid of flying, then if I hear about a problem on airline A, I remember there was a problem on airline B, as if that is the only thing that ever happened. Well, by now, you've probably seen a lot of coverage about that Alaska Airlines flight that had to make an emergency landing. On Friday, the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States announced a formal investigation into Boeing, the company that manufactured the plane. Just over a week ago, January 5th, a panel on that Boeing 737 MAX 9 blew off 20 minutes into the flight. Fortunately, there were no serious injuries. And it's worth noting this particular model of plane isn't used by any Canadian airlines, but at least two major U.S. carriers do. And if you felt a surge of anxiety seeing those stories, you should know you're not alone. According to the Canadian Psychological Association, a fear of flying is one of the most common types of phobias. So today we're going to try to calm those nerves with Dr. Luana Marcus. She's an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a clinical psychologist. And she's here live to take your calls and answer your questions. You can ask her anything on this issue, 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us, 226-758-8924. Dr. Marcus, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I heard you talk to our producer uh, in the pre-interview, and twice in that conversation, at the beginning and the end, you said you love getting calls, questions from uh, people on the radio. So I thought, well, this is a good sign because uh, we have somebody who's coming in very uh, enthusiastically. So that is fantastic. Now, now you treat patients who have a, a fear of flying. And, and so does something like this door panel blowing off, uh, I assume it would, increase that anxiety? For sure, it would increase the anxiety. For a lot of people, when they have a phobia already, and I heard one of the callers saying this already, that they are predicting the worst case scenario and they're generalizing to every single plane now. And so if you already had a pre-existing condition, now your brain is scanning for danger and it found something to land on. So it tends to get people a lot more anxiety. So let me play you a clip here from an aviation expert, John Graddick. He, he's the head of the aviation management program at McGill University in Montreal. And we asked him from an aviation perspective to put this incident into context for us. The bolts fell out and at a certain point in time with the vibrations, that whole panel detached itself from the airplane. So there was a couple of failures along the way. One was the, the fact the bolt was not attached sufficiently well, and two, that the quality control process at Boeing failed to pick up the fact that this bolt was under torque. I think that people should rest assured that the odds of this event happening again on the same airplane type with the same plug on this fuselage will not happen again. Air travel has had this moniker around it saying that it's the safest mode of transportation. And, you know, the industry has the statistics Around that, it remains the safest mode of transportation. So, Dr. Marcus, you know that. I know that. I'll bet you your patients, for the most part, know that, the safety of aviation. But that's not enough, I guess. So what is, what is the thought process that leads people, despite the overwhelming statistics uh, of safety, what is it that leads the people who are very fearful of flying, uh, what, what drives their fear? Yeah, I wish that the data was sufficient, but you're absolutely right, Ian. It's not sufficient. And mostly because when you're afraid of something, when you have a phobia, you are functioning out of what we know to be the emotional part of the brain, really our fight, flight, or freeze, our amygdala. And the function of that part of the brain is to protect us. And what we know scientifically is when the amygdala is on, our thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex, is not actually fully online and fully engaged. And so when you're telling somebody that's afraid of fly, you know, it's 200,000 200, times less likely that a plane is going to go down compared to a car accident, for example. What they hear is, you're not listening to me. I'm still very anxious. And so we really need to help their brain to understand that what they're feeling, it's a false alarm, that their brain's predicting the worst case scenario, and that in fact is very unlikely to happen. And that takes some time because again, as I said, they are in that fight or flight or freeze, and they're not thinking very critically at that point. Mm-hmm. And the thing I love is besides your academic expertise, you actually deal with people who have this anxiety. You help them cope with that because there are a lot of people out there who have to fly and they have to figure out a way to get on there and uh, and not make it uh, a terrible ordeal. And so we have over the next 25 minutes the opportunity for you to have a conversation with uh, people who are calling in and, and be able to sort of help them consider some of the coping strategies. Our number is one 888 
416-833-4168333. You can also text questions to 226-758-8924. Carol Slack is calling from Ottawa. Hi, Carol. Hi there. How are you? Um, I'm doing really well. So uh, what uh, question or comment do you have for Dr. Marcus? Um, I was a very bad flyer, and uh, I ended up um, getting YouTube premium and had pilots talking me to my ear um, in one ear as I flew. I took a, a trip, a sort of bucket list trip, and I had to take nine planes, but I made it. But what mm-hmm. I'm wondering is it makes a big difference, but it hasn't really gone away completely. Does Do you just still have to just kind of find ways to cope with the fear and walk through it? Or Yeah, Dr. Marcus? Carol, I'm glad that you made that bucket um, flight and it's your vacation. And that sounds fantastic. You know, my professional experience is that it can go away. Um, The problem is that often we have to separate flying for actually doing the treatment to get you better. And the treatment is what's known as exposure therapy, which means actually doing the thing you're afraid again and again in a way that you're actually looping. So often when I talk to patients, they're like, well, but I took a flight and it didn't get better. The treatment would be something like flying from Boston to New York three times in the same day, for example. Nowadays, luckily, we have things like virtual reality that we can actually train your brain to not go on that fight or flight. But there is definitely hope. And I've worked with a lot of people who've been able to either overcome it completely or become so much less that they're not having the anticipation the night before. They're not anxious. They're not having trouble sleeping. Comfortable, But it's just a little blip in, in the world. It's not something that paralyzes them. So my suggestion, yeah. look for exposure therapy. Thank you. I have a, a flight booked in April, so I'm I'm way more clear on going uh, than I ever have before. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, Carol, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, just to clarify, because I didn't I didn't fully understand it. So you were saying you talked about listening to pilots talking to you on on YouTube. What what was that? There's uh, there was one uh, like. Um, one co- uh, pilot that I really enjoyed listening to before getting ready for that big trip. Mm-hmm. And I left uh, the speaker in one ear as I, and he just explained everything about the mechanics of flying. And he was so calm. And uh, so I had about three or four of them that I would just keep in one ear mm-hmm. talking about how, how just basically talking me through how uh, safe it is and all the rest of it. But I found that really helpful to have that in one ear as I was in the plane. <laughs> yeah. And if I may ask this, Carol, is there a particular thing that you're fearful of when it comes to flying or is it just a general anxiety? Um. No, I think it was probably watching movies like uh, Castaway mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yep. <laughs> but yep. I think it was just my stuff and that's how it presented. Yeah. So I just had to work through it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for calling. I appreciate that. Okay. You're welcome. Our number Thanks. is one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. One eight 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 four one six eight three three three. If any questions about how to deal with anxiety or the fear of flying, you can also connect with us via cbc.ca/slash. Air check or text a question or comment to 226 758 8924. That is what Barbara Zuhovich did. 
and she reached out to us with this story via text. Uh, Barbara says, I was on a short flight from Montreal to Ottawa. Just before our descent, the pilot announced we'd have to turn back to Montreal due to a mechanical problem. He explained that the repair depot was in Montreal, and if we landed in Ottawa, the plane would not be able to take off. I was sitting beside a very nervous passenger who immediately became agitated. The flight attendant came up to her and said in a rather loud voice so we could all hear, do you think we're going to crash? Most of us laughed. (laughs) Okay, that's a weird uh, uh, thing, I think, for a flight attendant to say. Uh, Dr. Marcus, I assume that uh, talking, you know, using the C word, crash, on a plane is probably not the right way to deal with somebody who's anxious. Well, if you want to get them more anxious, that's definitely what the flight attendant did, right? Because if you are predicting the worst and now the person that you're supposed to rely on to calm you down is now suggesting that the plane might crash or just saying the word, um, certainly will make you a lot more anxious. So definitely something I'd not recommend. Mm -hmm. I I was on a flight one time, like, so I'm not a nervous flyer at all. I, I, I I actually enjoy flying. Uh, I mean, the environmental part of it is troubling, but in terms of, you know, the the aviation part, I find quite exciting. Um, but uh, Dr. Marcus, one time I was on a, 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 actually a series of flights heading from Vancouver to St. John's, Newfoundland, the far side, uh, eastern side of the country. Um, and one of my colleagues was sitting next to me from CBC, and I didn't realize how afraid she was to fly until we started taxiing on that first flight. And she grabbed my arm and dug her fingernails into my forearm. And I thought, wow, like this is, uh, I was not expecting this. And I really didn't have a good idea of, of how to react. I didn't know what to, I just felt uncomfortable. What, what advice do you have for me in that situation? So often when we are flying with somebody like that, you know, our brain, first, there's a surprise for you. Sounds like you're just like, what is going on here? And and, and it happens, right? We don't, people don't necessarily talk about it. A lot of people actually have a fear of flying, but they won't say it because they're afraid that if they talk about it, it's going to make them even more anxious. So they Mm -hmm. might sit next to you and you may not know. So my suggestion is really, um, one, to not try to make it better. A lot of people try to calm that person down, tell them to take deep breaths, tell them that's going to be okay. But as I said before, that person is really in a fight or flight state. Their brain's predicting the worst and their tunnel vision. So what I say when I'm flying to somebody that's nervous, I say, well, yeah, it sounds like you're really anxious about this. You know, I think about that anxiety like as the waves in the ocean, they go up and they come down. And so I suggest you just experience the sensations. Let's not run away from it. Hmm. Of course, I'm trained to do that. But the idea is trying to control that anxiety only will make it worse. So deep breathing when you're anxious just makes you more anxious. It doesn't actually relax you one on that when you are on that fight or flight, not before the plane, right? Deep breathing before the plane, relaxation, mindfulness, that's also very helpful. But in that moment, I'd say to somebody, let's ride this wave together and let's just stay here. And, you know, I've, I've had a moment like this with a colleague myself and she wanted to get out of the plane. And I said, the only thing I strongly recommend is let's not get off of this plane. Let's <laughs> do the best to stay here. And thankfully in our case, we landed and she sought some help because she was really being paralyzed by it. 
I'm really glad I asked you that question because I, I didn't – yeah, I learned a lot there including the, the idea of riding the wave uh, as opposed to please stop grabbing my forearm. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Luana Marcus is here to talk about uh, fear of flying and how she deals with patients on this issue and uh, advice she may have for you. Let's uh, go to Stratford, Prince Edward Island. Mary Lou Finnett is calling us. Hi, Mary Lou. Hi, how are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, what's uh, what's your flying comment uh, and, and question for Dr. Marcus? Well, I have a good friend who's absolutely terrified of flying. Mm-hmm. And her doctor prescribes Ativan for her. And she takes, I don't know how many of them, before she gets on a flight. She is really terrified. Mm-hmm. My question to the doctor is, would she not be better off, instead of taking medication like that, prescription medication, Maybe being hypnotized or perhaps going for counseling or something. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, if you turn down your radio and, uh, sure. and yeah, and uh, may come back to you, let's go to uh, Dr. Marcus. You know, it's interesting on, on Twitter or X, uh, I, I put out a tweet about this issue and got a lot of replies and a lot of people talked about sometimes jokingly, but other times seriously about medication, uh, self-medicating sometimes with alcohol, but also actual prescription medication to deal with uh, anxiety and flying. What, what's your view on that? So I should start by prefacing that I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. I Mm -hmm. don't prescribe. But scientifically, what we know is that that medication is going to come down your brain. So Ativan is what's known as a benzodiazepine. So Ativan, Valium, they're all going to come down your brain. But unfortunately, what you're training your brain to do is to learn that the only way you can tolerate this fear is by taking this medication. So in fact, when I treat somebody and they come to me and say, you know, the only way I can fly is taking um, Ativan, I usually work with their psychiatrist, a prescribing doctor to eventually get them off the medication, to get them to experience the sensation. Because what we want somebody to learn is what you and I, Ian, feel when we're in a plane, we sort of enjoy it and it's Mm -hmm. not dangerous. And there isn't a real lion, it's a perceived threat, not a real threat. So we know that the medication doesn't help. Now, I'll make one um, exception here. Sometimes I've worked with people that the only way they can even consider is taking the medication. And so it becomes then a stepping stone that they fly first taking the medication, but with the idea that eventually we're going to win them off of this medication and we're going to train their brain the difference between a real threat versus a perceived threat. And when they can learn that, they can tolerate it. So um, I think Mary Lou's friend would be better to seek some counseling for the fear long-term. Sometimes, though, people do need it short-term. Mary Lou, I'm not sure if you're still on the line, but do you have a follow-up? No, I don't. I appreciate what she says. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree that they should seek counseling and perhaps try and come off the uh, prescribed medication. But if that's their only outlet, if that's the only thing they can do, then I guess they have to do it if they have to fly. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that. And and Dr. Marcus, also Mary Lou asked about hypnotism. What, what's your feeling uh, of, about that? So we don't have anything scientifically that would suggest that hypnotism actually would help with a fear of flying. Um, and so I tend to stick with what I know scientifically. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because I don't have data to support it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you're listening to Cross Country Checkup, we are live and we're talking about fear of flying, especially anxiety stoked when a story like the Alaska Airlines uh, story is dominating the headlines. And we have a psychotherapist here who deals with patients uh, working through this fear of flying and she can give you some advice as well. Our number is one 888 You can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck or text us at 226-758-8924. Four. Donna, Donnie Friedman is in Toronto. Hi, Donnie. Uh, hi, Ian. Yeah, this is a great discussion. Mm-hmm. So I am a fearful flyer. So some time ago, I signed up for a 10-week course with a therapist on fear of flying. Mm-hmm. He announced that in the last session, all his patients would take a short flight together, at which point I dropped out of the course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. But he did have one insight, and I thought it was really um, very accurate. He asked me if I would still be scared if I was flying the plane. And I thought about it, and I realized that I wouldn't. So Hmm. the therapist concluded that this was a control issue. I just couldn't, you know, give up control. And I think he was right. And on the issue of medication, no, I've never wanted to take medication on the flight because then how could I concentrate on keeping the plane in the air? <laughs> so, so Donna, stay on the line because I, I'm so glad that you brought this up. Uh, Dr. Marcus, um, I, I, this is something I'd heard about a long time ago is, is, is how the, the people, you know, despite the, the statistics comparing aviation to driving a car and that we know however you measure it, it's more dangerous to be on the road than it is to be on a commercial flight. Uh, We have this sense of control when we're driving, even if we're not very good drivers, even if it's snowing outside, even if the person who's hurtling towards us at 100 kilometers an hour, you know, we have no idea uh, how good they are. We still feel like we have control. Uh, To what extent do you think this, in, in your experience as a psychotherapist dealing with, with patients, uh, is control uh, an issue with fear of flying? That's a great question, Ian. And I think it would be helpful, I think, for people to think about why is it that they are afraid of flying, right? We've been talking to some people that they're afraid the plane is going to crash, right? And that's the focus of their fear. For some people, they are actually not afraid of flying. They're afraid of a small enclosed place. And so they're not, they don't have a phobia. They have claustrophobia in the sense of they're afraid of being a small enclosed place. The plane is a small enclosed place. And so they feel afraid of it. For Mm -hmm. some people, as you're talking about, the focus of their fear, like Donnie, it may be more control. What we know is that our brain hates uncertainty. We don't like when things are uncertain, but the reality is we can't control most things. And so what I say to people when it comes to control is what are the things you can control? And, you know, thankfully in the U.S. and Canada, we can control, for example, the airline that we fly um, versus very different. I grew up in Brazil and some airlines in Brazil are not as secure as their airlines here. So there's some things you might be able to do to control how you go about flying. But she's right. If the fear, the focus of fear is control, then the treatment necessarily is not necessarily flying. It's really being able to tolerate uncertainty and not having control. Mm-hmm. And and Donnie, you said you you took a ten week course, but didn't take that last week because it involved flying. Other than the one insight about control, was there anything else in the nine weeks you did attend that were was helpful for you? No, I never got even to the second session when I heard oh. about the flight that was. Oh. <laughs> I thought, who, who needs this? Oh man, 
All right. Your therapist mentioned about um, things that you can control, and mm-hmm. so the incident, I think it was with a Boeing, so my mind already goes to, okay, so maybe I should be on Airbus, not Boeing, you know, yeah, and then do yeah. a whole research project. Yeah, well, you know, as we heard in the excerpt we, we played from an aviation expert early on is that uh, this was rare. It really was, even even for Boeing and that, you know, the MAX 9s are being checked very carefully. They will not be put back in the air, almost certainly, uh, unless they are safe. Uh, and one of the things is, not only is it rare, but, you know, keep your seatbelt on when you're flying, right? Like, that's Good really point. important as well. But uh, so do you fly at all, Donnie? I do. If I yeah. must, I will. But mm-hmm. I don't do it for pleasure. Yeah. Only if I must. All right. Well, hopefully you get to, to relax a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I do on the control part. I just, you know, do you go here? This may sound silly, Donnie, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you do you take roller? Do you go on roller coasters at all? No. Okay, because no. like I love roller Why coasters. Would I? <laughs> well, I love roller coasters, and one of the things oh, I, I think go. to myself is that I've got I do have no control here, right? So I just I sit back and enjoy the ride. So you're a e- risk taker, Ian. Well, except I'm not actually. You know, there is there's no risk, right? That when I'm on the yeah, I feel I feel like there is no risk. I just feel like it's the thrill of 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 speed without actually taking nice. any risk. But anyway, um, I wish the best for you, Donnie. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank All right, bye bye. Let's go. Oh, look at this. Richard Walker is, uh, is calling from London, Ontario. And I see, Richard, you're a former engineer test pilot. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, with both the military as a fighter pilot and in Transport Canada, certifying new aircraft that operate in Canada. Man, so this is the, the absolute opposite of me on the roller coaster, completely handing <laughs> over control to, to the people at the, you know, in charge here. Um, <laughs> And and so, obviously, you're not afraid of flying, but I see here that you helped your wife overcome her fear of flying. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, she had a fear of flying because she didn't know what was going on, both in the air traffic control environment and the funny noises that the airplane would make from time to time. Mm-hmm. So the first time, two times we started flying together, then I would explain to her what's going on in the air traffic control world, what those noises are on the aircraft, and perhaps even more importantly, I would give her uh, describe to her what we do during the certification programs of these aircraft. And I'd like to say we fly the aircraft higher than it will ever go in operation, slower than it will ever go, faster than it will ever go, and many other uh, parts of the flight envelope that just go beyond where the airplane will be operated. And, and does that ever make you nervous? No, unfortunately. <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, I don't. Yeah. I just have great confidence in the aircraft, and uh, that was my job, of course. But yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that is fantastic. Uh, I'm glad you called. I would be tempted to talk to you for half an hour if I could, but I, I can't. Um, but, but Richard, thank you very much for calling in. Yes, the point was that she now knows what makes airplanes fly and what we've done, so she's comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. No, point well taken. Uh, let's go to Guysborough County, Nova Scotia. Darren Crooks is calling. Hi, Darren. Hello, can you hear me okay? Uh, I can. Now, unfortunately, we only have about two minutes here. You have an incredibly important uh, personal story to tell us. Uh, can, can you start that story in about a minute and we'll pick it up from there? Sure. I worked in the oil and gas industry and uh, uh, probably since 2012. I uh, spent, uh, I worked in many different countries. I flew about 120 flights a year, sometimes flew 180 flights a year. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is, uh, I remember in March, AC-624 Air Canada flight mm-hmm. uh, coming back into the country. 
we had a herd landing in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yep. Uh, for those, maybe some people are familiar with it, or maybe some people aren't. Uh, that does happen, like I said, and. Uh, yeah. So Personally, so about like so, so some people some people class, I get knocked out. Yep. Uh, I get a bunch of stitches and things like that. So you know what that does happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very scary. It took me about seventy or eighty flights after that before I felt comfortable to fly in the plane again. So I guess that's what I wanted to share. Yeah. So you were knocked out. You were knocked unconscious in that hard landing. Well, yes, and yeah. uh, like I said, I. Uh, you can see videos from that, and I'm the guy that walks around with the pillow with the blade brim out of their head or whatever. But yeah. uh, I say, uh, you know, airplanes are pretty safe, but you know, sometimes things do go wrong. Uh, Darren, one quick question, and, and I only have seconds left here, though, but uh, the first flight after that, what was that like for you? Uh, not so bad, but when the first flights that, when it was dark and you had turbulence, it was very scary. Yeah. All right. Darren, thank you so much for calling. I wish we had more time. Uh, let me go back to Dr. Marcus uh, one more time. What do you think of Darren's story? I think, he, you know, things do happen. And yeah. I will say that to a patient. The reality is I can't promise you that the flight's going to be safe. The question is, why take that flight and why face this fear? And for most people, it's because they want a better quality of life over time. But Darren is right. Scary things do happen, but they happen uh, not just on the plane. It happens in life. We can't, we can't stop those things. Yeah. And we have 30 seconds left. Uh, the, the caller before, the test pilot, interesting that he feels like he calmed his wife's anxiety by showing her all the things that are done to uh, make sure you're safe. Yeah, I love that call because he helped her change the narrative in her brain. And we haven't really talked about this, but changing what you're predicting and what you're saying to yourself can really calm you down during a flight. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a real pleasure getting a chance to, to hear your answers and talk to you on the program. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Dr. Luana Marcus is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's also a clinical psychologist, and she spoke to us from Boston, Massachusetts. That's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from January 14th, 2024. If you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners, Chuck Mulga, Chloe Kim, and Mackenzie Rebello. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Vivian Ming, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wolfson. Our program assistant is Tori Goodwin. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner and Ruksar Ali. Digital producer is Sinisha Yolich. And the senior producer of the program is Steve Howard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.